Move by Mamma Mia is the exercise app for anybody, anywhere. And in case you missed it, we dropped a brand new stretching collection that can be used to improve mobility and bookend your favourite sweat sessions. Mamma Mia subscribers get unlimited access to Move and we drop new workouts every single week. If you're on the hunt for movement that makes you feel good, head to move.mamamia.com.au and use the code MOVE10 to get $10 off a yearly subscription. Американская фирма Transceptor Technology приступила к производству компьютеров персональный спутник. We begin tonight in South Florida. There has been a shooting and there are reports of injuries and what the school superintendent calls numerous fatalities. I will never ever infringe on the right to keep and bear arms. If all our government and president can do is send thoughts and prayers, then it's time for victims to be the change that we need to see. Welcome to Tell Me It's Gonna Be Okay, the show about the president whose hair has been described as a mullet that died in some kind of bad accident. This week, along with America and the world, President Trump has been devastated and furious about the events of the past few days. But unlike most of us, whose distress and anger has centred on the latest school shooting where 17 innocent people were killed, Trump is pissed about something unrelated that happened in the days following the massacre, when 13 Russian nationals and groups were indicted by Special Prosecutor Robert Mueller for meddling in the 2016 US election. In an unhinged tweet storm that began at 11pm on Saturday night and continued for the next 24 hours, the president managed to mangle and conflate these two huge stories in a way that has been described as even more cynical and narcissistic than is his usual style. Nobody can do it like me. Can the bar go any lower? Don't answer that, because we also need to talk about a new report that uncovers the systematic way Trump and his lawyer have been paying off the women with whom he's had multiple adulterous affairs over decades. It's called Catch and Kill, but how does it work? To help me digest this enormous meal of information is honorary American and my super smart co-host Amelia Lester, who wrote a profile of New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, which has made international headlines this week. Hello. Hello, that's nice of you to say. And it was a comparison to Trump that you made that everybody's talking about. Yeah, so it was in um, American Vogue. It's on the Vogue website. I called her the anti-Trump and that's very much how I felt when I went to New Zealand to report the story. This was in December when the North Korea stuff was heating up again and I just felt like she really was a breath of fresh air amidst Me Too and the nuclear crisis and the Russia investigation. And here's someone who's just incredibly interesting, interested, intelligent, and has a lot of integrity, who is 37 and who was secretly pregnant when I interviewed her. And you were also secretly pregnant when you interviewed her. <laughs> well, no, I told her I was pregnant <laughs> because I I feel the need to tell everyone because I get very hangry. And she just sort of smiled and nodded and said, oh, congratulations. And then a couple of days before the article went to press, she texts me and she's like, you need to know that I'm pregnant. <laughs> I love that she just so, texts you. <laughs> she's very informal and casual in that way. Oh, I'm so glad you say that because she seemed absolutely delightful, which could not be further from Donald Trump, of course. And I want to start with the shooting. Most people will know the details by now. 14 students and three teachers died when a 19-year-old opened fire with an assault rifle at Marjorie Stoneman Douglas High School on Valentine's Day. The gunman was a former student. 
when I first heard about this, I just assumed with the fatigue that I think everybody probably feels that it was going to be another blip in the news cycle and that predictable cycle of thoughts and prayers, nothing happening, move on till the next shooting was going to happen. I think it's the 18th school shooting just this year. But this shooting's really felt different. And I saw this borne out in a graph that looked at the number of Google searches and media stories around a shooting. And and as I said, it does usually follow a pattern where it spikes and then it falls away quicker and quicker with every subsequent shooting. But this time that hasn't happened. And searches for gun control, searches and conversation and stories around this has kept going and is showing no sign of tapering off. What's different this time? I think it's the teenagers and it speaks to the craziness of our times that I find myself hoping and wishing that teenagers can change things instead of the president of the United States. The teenagers held a rally over the weekend. I think they understand the power of social media. They understand how quickly the news cycle moves. They understand that because it's it's something that they know instinctively. And they understood that they had to move very quickly on this issue. So even when other people are saying this isn't the right time to talk about guns, they decided this weekend to hold a protest and gave some really stirring speeches. One thing that was striking about it was that um, one of the young women who spoke had this repeated mantra of we call BS. Politicians who sit in their gilded house and senate seats funded by the NRA telling us nothing could have ever been done to prevent this. We call BS. She was talking about how there are various arguments put forward as to why gun control won't work. And John Oliver, the comedian, pointed out that all of our hope for gun reform falls to a group of people who are still too young to say bullshit in front of their parents. But it was a really powerful piece of footage. Did you catch that? I did. And it is really extraordinary. I've been reading also that the students have planned a walkout for April the 20th, which will actually mark 19 years to the day since the Columbine High School massacre. And as you say, it's been a week where we've seen teenagers behave like leaders and leaders behave, I won't even say like teenagers, but like toddlers, which is pretty much the bar that we've come to expect from the president. Because the way that Trump managed to mash these two stories together in this tweet storm, he said, very sad that the FBI missed all of the many signals sent out by the Florida school shooter. This is not acceptable. They are spending too much time trying to prove Russian collusion with the Trump campaign. There is no collusion. No collusion. What he first said, actually, was that it's the fault of the students that more people should have reported the gunman. And to that, the students called BS and they said, we have. We reported him. He was pretty much voted the student most likely to be involved in a mass shooting. None of that was acted on. So firstly, he blamed the victims. Secondly, it's also worth noting that, as you pointed out to me, the shooter was wearing a Make America Great hat again in one of, was it his Twitter photo, his profile photo? Yeah. And the other thing that the students have done is that they've explicitly drawn the line between NRA funding for political candidates, particularly Republicans, and Trump. So they said, I can't remember if it was the student that you named, said, if Trump comes and says, you haven't done enough, I will say back to him, how much in donations have you accepted from the NRA, the National Rifle Association? And it's true that pretty much the whole Republican Party and many politicians are in the pocket of the NRA. Can you explain a little bit how that works and how that's meant that massacre after massacre has allowed to happen without any form of gun regulation, unlike in Australia, where after Port Arthur, John Howard very swiftly changed the laws? 
One thing I am a little wary of is drawing too direct a comparison between Australia and the US. I know a lot of Australians like to mention Port Arthur and the stunning way in which John Howard completely clamped down on gun violence after Port Arthur, which was a very politically courageous move. And I don't mean to understate that at all, but the way gun laws operate in America is so different to the way they operate in Australia. So for instance, each state has its own very specific gun laws and also gun ownership is enshrined in the constitution. So it's I don't want to say it's not as easy because it wasn't easy in Australia either, but I'm just wary of making a direct comparison. Having said that, the NRA certainly has a big role to play in perpetuating this inability to bring about gun reform. And the New York Times had a really interesting infographic over the weekend, which ranked all the politicians in Congress as to how much money they get from the NRA. So for instance, someone like Senator John McCain, who's often thought of by liberals quite fondly, received almost a million dollars to fund his latest campaign from the NRA. And the NRA also releases these grades for politicians, which politicians really, particularly Republicans, I mean, there's there's no point saying that, that Democrats are in any way part of this problem to the same extent. Republicans are really worried about what grade they get from the NRA. But interestingly, in a sign of change, some Republican politicians have over the weekend taken down their NRA grade, which they previously displayed proudly on their websites. It's a sign that maybe the NRA is starting to seem a little bit more stigmatized in the broader community, which is a positive sign. It was almost like the Heart Foundation tick of approval that food manufacturers seek to get on their products. If you got an NRA grade that was high, it straight away signaled to voters and gun buyers and gun lovers that this was a politician that you should vote for, right? That was the subtext. Exactly. Yeah. And there's an article that I'd like us to post by Anne Helen Peterson, who I know you've interviewed for No Filter, looking at kind of the ways in which gun ownership is so embedded in the American psyche in a way that is very difficult for outsiders to understand. And that was the first article I read that really kind of explained it to me. It's difficult to overstate the importance of rights in the American mind. And the Second Amendment says that Americans have a right to bear arms. It's really difficult to unpack. It's not clear how we get to a place where fewer people are killed with guns. But one place to start is by looking at the sort of guns that are widely available. And the AR-15, which was the gun that was used by the gunman, is a military-grade weapon which no civilian needs. Are you enjoying this show in your ear holes but you're not a subscriber? We thought we knew you. Now, Trump did two things this week. One is he tried to make it a mental health issue because, you know, guns don't kill people. Mental health kills people. The ability to do this and to try to draw attention away, look over there, look over there, is very cynical, very deliberate and is part of the NRA playbook whenever these massacres occur. And one of the students came out and said, well, I'd I'd like to see someone like the killer in this instance try to kill a large number of people with a butter knife or whatever, let's see, compared to a military-grade weapon, how far he gets. The next talking point Trump moved to, which takes us to the Russia story, is that after 13 people were indicted and groups were indicted, Russian people and groups were indicted by Mueller for meddling in the 2016 election, Trump tried to draw a straight line between these two stories by saying that the FBI was not able to enact on those tips that people did leave 
about the shooter because they were too busy with a Russian inquiry. Now, just to do a bit of fact-checking on that, there are 35,000 workers who are employed by the FBI. A small handful of them are working on the Russia inquiry and they are not the same people who are charged with investigating tips and leads. And he obviously knows that. So that was an incredibly self-interested segue and link that he tried to make, clearly because he's feeling under a lot of pressure. Mia, just on that point, I unfortunately I have to watch a lot of Fox News in my daily life, not by choice. And that's a direct talking point from Fox, the idea that the massacre could have been prevented by the FBI if they weren't involved in the Russia investigation. On the weekend on Fox, that was all people were talking about. There was certainly no discussion of gun control. It was all about the fact that the FBI was too busy with Russia to investigate the shooter's mental health issues, which is just crazy on a whole number of levels. But keep in mind that Trump cancelled his golf game on the weekend because he said out of respect for the Parkland victims, that meant he was watching a lot of Fox. And I think that goes a long way in in explaining why he went on that Twitter. There are a lot of journalists who follow um, what is on Fox News with the president's Twitter feed and they they see that correlation and you're right. So Obama was previously criticised for playing golf too soon after a massacre. So Trump was forced, no doubt, against his will to stay inside and he he was watching a lot of television as a recent story by Maggie Haberman in the last 24 hours has has said and it talks about how he initially when this indictment came out thought that it was good news for him because as part of the indictment Ros Rosenstein said that there is no allegation in this indictment that any American was a knowing participant in this illegal activity. Now what's interesting about this is there is no allegation in this indictment. There could be in the next one and so Trump immediately went, this is awesome. It says there was no collusion. So he was initially really buoyed. But then when he was watching media over the weekend at Mar-a-Lago, he became aware that on CNN and everywhere else in the media, it was becoming apparent that it really did strongly suggest and explicitly state that this influenced or potentially influenced the outcome of the 2016 election, which cast a cloud over his victory, which is something he cannot handle. So we are then immediately back in that same realm of outrage that he had when people said, because it was true, that the inauguration crowd was not the biggest or his ratings are not the biggest or that he didn't win the popular vote. And so we know that when there are any aspersions cast on the legitimacy of his victory, he goes nuts. And that's what he did over the weekend. And a lot of people said that that particular tweet that kind of conflated the Parkland massacre with the FBI and the Russia investigation was his worst tweet yet. The other thing that he tried to do in his tweet storm was throw light on the Obama administration and again say, look over there, look over there. I should say cast blame rather than throw light. Because in the indictment, it said that these Russian bad actors who have been indicted, there was an organised attempt that started in 2014, when of course Obama was president, to meddle in the US democratic process and eventually to influence the outcome of the election in 2016. So he straight away went, oh, 2014, that's good news for me because I hadn't even announced my candidacy. Therefore, 
none of this Russian stuff could possibly be connected to me. However, what's interesting in digging a bit deeper into that and saying, well, why did it start in 2014? The reason is very simple. Back in 2014, Russia was becoming increasingly isolated and it annexed Crimea. So that put it very much in the bad sights of the Obama administration. And the Secretary of State at that time was Hillary Clinton. So Secretary of State, for those who don't know, is akin to Foreign Minister. So she was very much the one that was charged with being out there speaking up against Putin and against Russia. And she said things like, he's a tough guy with a thin skin, to which he then responded by saying that it's better not to argue with a woman. Hillary Clinton is weak. Maybe weakness is not the worst quality for a woman. Horrendous, right? And it was no coincidence that this organisation was established in 2014 because the purpose of it was to undermine Hillary Clinton because Trump may not have announced his candidacy then, but it was very clear that Hillary Clinton was going to be a candidate in 2016, back in 2014. So that's when they formed this organisation. About 80 people were assigned to this project. They had a graphics department. They had an SEO department. They had a social media buying department. They sent people to the US to gather intelligence. And by intelligence, you know, Matt Apuzo in the New York Times was saying that's just basic information about which states were red states, which were blue states, which were swing states, what issues were the ones that were most dividing Americans. And at the same time, they also stole the identities of organisations and individuals to make it look like everything they did over the next few years came from grassroots Americans. So they identified what the hot button issues were that people were very emotional and angry about, things like religion, race, immigration, gender. And they really created these campaigns and memes and stories and organisations that basically capitalised on what was already there and really tried to pour petrol on the fire of existing divisions within the US. It was actually very smart. One thing to really remember is that Russia was doing bad things around 2014 and Hillary Clinton and the Obama administration were calling them out on those things. So the other key thing, in addition to the annexing of Crimea, was the crash of the Malaysia Airlines plane over eastern Ukraine, which happened in July 2014, and which they've never really gotten to the bottom of. But there was credible speculation that Russian high-ups, including Russian generals, were involved in that crash. So Russia desperately needed to change the subject and also to change the narrative away from them as the bad so guys. some of the things that they did, I was looking at one of the memes that they put out was an arm wrestle between Satan and Jesus. And the caption was Satan saying, if I win, Hillary wins. And so then it said, click like if you want Jesus to win. And who's going to say, no, I want Satan to win? So things like that. And there were also, of course, much more sophisticated things. And they recruited Americans who, were, you know, didn't realize they were being recruited by Russian operatives to try to say, yeah, we really care about black rights and encourage people to vote for the third party candidate rather than Hillary Clinton, because Hillary Clinton's got terrible record on supporting Black Lives Matter. It only changed in about 2016, according to the indictments, when Donald Trump became a candidate or 2015 and they shifted their strategy to not only trying to denigrate Hillary Clinton but also trying to help Donald Trump win. So this is a pretty big deal. This is a foreign government actively trying to influence 
by illegal means, the outcome of a US election. And the key thing for Russia was that it didn't really even matter if Trump didn't end up winning. It would be great if he did, but either way, their goal was destabilization. So remember in the lead up to the 2016 election, something that people were very worried about was that if the likely happened, which was that Hillary won, Trump had already gone on the record saying that he would not necessarily accept the outcome of the election. And people were very worried Mm. that there would be violence and rioting in the streets. So either way, if your goal is destabilizing, you win, regardless of whether Trump or Hillary wins. And then it's interesting that one of the details was that on the day after the election, these Russian trolls organized protests, both a not my president anti-Trump protest, as well as a Trump rally. And that just says it all. They just want to stoke the antagonism on both sides. So this is really an important data point in the whole Russian story and the Russian investigation because Trump can no longer deny the fact that Russia was involved in meddling in the election. We will make America great again. God bless you and good night. I love you. A story that got a little bit lost in these other two big stories of the week came from Ronan Farrow, who is, of course, the author of one of the most extraordinary parts of the Me Too campaign investigations uh, into Harvey Weinstein. And he, he wrote an incredible story about that for The New Yorker. And this week, he came out with another story, this time about Trump and the deals that he's been routinely doing for many, many years around silencing women with whom he's had adulterous affairs. What did you think about this story? So I had heard rumours that there is video footage that the National Enquirer bought of Trump doing something not good, which they specifically bought in order to silence the story. And I suspect that that's why Ronan Farrow originally started investigating this. The video footage that I've heard about is not connected with this story that he ultimately wrote. But it's part of a wider trend that the New York Times also wrote about, this idea of catch and kill in the tabloid industry. The National Enquirer is run by a friend of Trump's. He paid $150,000 for the exclusive rights to this story about a Playboy playmate who Trump had. I think an affair is probably too strong, but what do we call it? A a brief relationship with Donald Trump in 2014. And then the National Enquirer bought this story in the lead up to the 2016 election. I was less interested in in the fact that he'd had yet another affair while married to Melania and more interested in what this suggests about what else is out there, the other stories that we don't yet know or yet or that haven't yet been verified about Trump. I completely agree with that. And it's true. It was easy to get lost in the weeds of this story because there was a lot of details. And the, the woman that came out and spoke, I think her name's Karen McDougall, she they all have to sign these confidentiality agreements. So we had Stormy Daniels sign hers. We had this woman, presumably what Ronan Farrow suggests is that there are dozens of these out there. And Michael Wolf alluded to this in his book as well about Michael Cohen, who is Trump's longtime personal lawyer. He's been charged with suppressing these stories for many, many years. And now these women are tr- essentially gagged from coming forward and telling their stories. What I found interesting, 
interesting as well about this is the national security implications because I hadn't thought about it from that point of view. I was thinking more about, well, it speaks of the character of the man and this was all suppressed so people voted for him and he had a, a big following among them and big support among the Christian right and the evangelicals and he really relied on them and Republicans are quite conservative, you know, family values. So had all this stuff come out prior would he have been elected as even a candidate, let alone as the president? Like, we are where we are. He was. It's happened. But the national security concerns about this are around, if you've done people favours, and David Pecker, who is one of his closest friends, who is at the National Enquirer, who owns the National Enquirer and has all of this compromising information that he's acquired through Catch and Kill... The I love that his name is Pecker, by the way. Oh, David Isn't Pecker. that perfect for like a sleazy tabloid guy? And he looks it. <laughs> he has a lot of leverage over the president. I've listened to interviews with former Obama staffers and they talk about the process of getting national security clearance. And part of it is they say, how many times or what drugs have you taken? And you have to basically say everything that could potentially be used as leverage over you. And they said, we don't actually care what you've done but we care about anything you might be trying to hide because if someone else then knows about it, you can be compromised. So what no one's talking about really enough yet because there's so much else to talk about, the story of this presidency, is if someone like David Pecker and presumably all the people that are involved in you know, the American media organisation, which he owns, has all of this compromising information, including the women themselves, the president is incredibly compromised. Of course. I mean, it's clear that he's done so many dodgy deals in his time. And I have a quick recommendation on this subject, which is that on Netflix, there's a documentary series called Dirty Money that's pretty Mm -hmm. new. And the final episode is devoted to Trump's business dealings and exploring this idea of because he's had so many compromising relationships, both business and personal, he is incredibly open to security threats, blackmail, those sorts of things. And that really connected it all for me. Which brings us back to Russia. Because in Russia, they talk about compromat with a K, which is basically Mm. the way Russia compiles dirt files on people and then blackmails them. So part of that was does... Putin have the P-tape, the alleged P-tape of Trump with the sex workers weighing on the bed that was slept in by the Obamas? And if so, can that be used to bribe Trump and influence outcomes of everything from foreign policy to trade to who knows what else? And, And I guess there is so much compromising information out there about Trump. This never seemed to even be a talking point during the election. You've only got to wonder whether that has to be surely a talking point at the next election. And is it a problem even before then? I mean, can his own security clearance be questioned or revoked? I don't know the answer to that, but it sort of brings me back to the idea of the media's role in the election and the fact that we knew so much about Hillary's private email server. There was all this low-hanging fruit in terms of Trump and his business past and his relationship past, and we knew none of that. Which just shows you how effective the Russians were in seeding these ideas about she's a liar, she's a liar, she's got secrets. And also how easily susceptible people were to latching onto the idea of a a sort of manipulative, sneaky woman as opposed to this wealthy, flashy businessman having some skeletons in his own closet. Ah, Putin and Trump are so alike. It seems a long time (laughs) ago that we were talking about Rob Porter. I mean, talk about whiplash. You know, just a week ago when in our last episode, we were talking about the scandal of a wife basher being endorsed by the president and his 2IC chief of staff, John Kelly. 
And now it's like Rob who? Just another. <laughs> I hadn't even thought about him. Yeah, I know. Remember Rob? Remember back when we were talking about Rob Porter? <laughs> well, that's another week. Let's see how much uh, we can gather to talk about before next week. No doubt a lot. Yes. I'm glad that I have you to debrief with. I will speak to you next week, my friend. Okay, bye. Bye. Thank you for listening to Tell Me It's Going to Be Okay. You can find links to any of the articles that we've mentioned in the show notes for this episode or by visiting our Tell Me It's Going to Be Okay Facebook group. This podcast was produced by Luca Levine, who knew almost nothing about Trump before he started producing this podcast and now subscribes to The Washington Post. And we will see you at mamamia.com.au.